Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'm Ryan Millsap. I got into the movie making business by being a real estate entrepreneur, but also because I'm a big movie fan. I get a huge kick out of watching blockbuster movies that I watch being made at Black Hall. COVID-19 has put a temporary crimp in production, hasn't it for everybody? But some amazing movies will be shooting at our studio soon, and I'll have some amazing folks on the podcast. I'm also into ethics and philosophy, and I think you'll see those themes throughout the podcast. So you're wondering, where exactly does the movie business and philosophy come together? That's the journey I want to take you on on the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'll bring you guests from both worlds, and I think you'll be surprised at how much philosophy goes into the world of making movies. Plus, you'll get an inside look at the new Hollywood of the South right here in Atlanta, Georgia. Give a listen. I think you'll enjoy what you hear. I'm happy to have you along for the ride on the Black Hall Studios podcast. My guest today is Ivy Mirapol, director, producer, and granddaughter of the couple convicted and executed for espionage in 1953, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Ivy Mirapol directed and produced the HBO documentary Bully, Coward, Victim, The Story of Roy Cohn, which premiered at the 2019 New York Film Festival. Mirapol is a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and was a 2013 Sundance Institute Fellow. Listen up to this profoundly current conversation I'm privileged to have with Ivy Mirapol. Roy Cohn was the reason my parents were convicted and executed. I read The Judgment of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, and there was a reference to Roy Cohn, and I'd already heard about him because of McCarthy. To call Roy Cohn evil, it's true, but it doesn't explain a hundred other things about him. Every era has an opportunist, somebody who will stretch the law and ethics to make the ends justify the means. Roy knew how to get permits taken care of, unions to do your bidding, the mafia to leave you alone. He would do whatever he needed to to win. That is how to wield power. Donald Trump, he said, you stand up to the establishment. Can I come see it? The whole point was to resist. Never admit that you're wrong. Trump fell in love with that. The only place I ever saw him was in Front Street. People that owned it, he said, well, I just always spit in his food every time I serve it. I would have done more than spit. He wanted to make himself this indispensable power broker, sort of like the original fixer. What do you say to people who say you ruin people's lives? I say name one. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. My guest today is Ivy Mirapol, granddaughter of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who many of you may know the story of, but we're going to talk about a little bit today. And specifically, we're going to talk about her documentary that is on HBO right now, which is excellent, Bully, Coward, Victim, The Story of Roy Cohn. It premiered at the 2019 New York Film Festival and is now on HBO. I watched it on HBO Max. 
Ivy, welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. I'm glad you're here. Share with us a little bit about the organic evolution of telling the Roy Cohn story. I mean, obviously, this was a story that was in your family, but walk us through a little bit about that evolution for you. Sure. I mean, as you see, uh, when you watch the film, as you know, um, it opens with uh, some some old Super 8 footage of myself and my family, and I'm around 10 years old, and I'm pointing out these portraits on the wall of my grandparents, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. And so you, the idea there was to, to bring people into our world uh, immediately in the film, which is, you know, that I grew up knowing from a very young age uh, what had happened to my grandparents and my father, my uncle, which was that they were, my grandparents were accused of stealing the secret of the atom bomb and sharing that information with the Soviet Union. And they were executed in June of 1953 when my father was 10 and my uncle was seven. So I grew up with this kind of this horrific story looming over us. But I also there were so there were many uh, names associated with and many figures associated with this story um, who were kind of like the bad guys in my in my young mind. And they included everyone from J. Edgar Hoover to Roy Cohn. And Roy Cohn featured into our story because he was the assistant prosecutor in their in their trial. It was his first um, big job out of law school. I mean, he'd done a little bit of work, uh, but he was his kind of his his uh, it, it launched his career. Uh, he was only twenty three, and he had a lot to do with sending them to the electric chair with um, getting that, you know, getting the guilt, the, um, the conviction, getting them convicted, of course, but also specifically pushing for executions for my, and the, and the execution of my grandmother. And he, he, uh, he helped manufacture a story that my grandmother's brother, David Greenglass, who was arrested first before they were, um, he helped, he, he basically guided green glass to uh, tell a story that would get Ethel arrested, which was that she had typed up some notes. He later admitted that he had, uh, he had lied and that Cone had given him that story to tell. So uh, sorry, I know that may not have told you the whole, <laughs> that was kind of, I just wanted to give everyone the, the full background there. No, I like um, that. It, one, one of the things that I was wondering is I, you know, I, I read a little bit around the internet and um, some more about the story after I started watching the documentary, which I watched in two pieces. I watched the first half and then I took a break. I did some things and I watched the second half. One of the questions that I had is what is the family's position today on these are your grandparents. Yes. Right. So you, what is the family's position about what they actually did or didn't do? And then, and then the question of then what did Roy Cohn do with them? That was, you know, unethical perhaps. Right. Um, but, but start with the, the, your grandparents and tell me what today the family position is on what they did or didn't do. Well, I, you know, the, the position is that, that Julius was involved in in some very low level espionage, um, and actually uh, before the Soviet Union became our enemy, so they were still our allies. So this was like the late 1940s; they were still our allies. And the 
what we have come to kind of understand if, if, as we try to grapple with, and we can't really put ourselves back in time necessarily, and we don't have enough information, but is why would, why, what would compel him to do that? Other than, uh, you know, being um, a member of the American Communist Party and believing that the Communist Party was the most progressive movement and it was going to save, um, you know, uh, our country also because it was, you know, more equal and more fair and cared more about, you know, civil rights and all the kind of progressive movement issues of the time. But it also had to do with the fact that the Soviet Union was, um, you know, fighting the Nazis and they were fighting them before we were. So they, you know, for a Jewish American like my grandfather, my grandparents were, um, and my father always talks about this, that, you know, he, he probably felt that supporting the Soviet Union was also supporting the defeat of Nazi Germany. So there, there's a lot of different layers to this about what, and if we try to imagine like what he was, what they were up to, but we do know that he was actively trying to share military industrial secrets with the Soviet Union, but he was a very low level. And so the idea that they could have helped get the secret, the so-called secret of the atom bomb and be the people to give that to the Soviet Union was, was, was outlandish. And we still, we still feel that to this day. Now that said, David Greenglass, who was working at Los Alamos where they were developing the bomb, he may have been trying to do that. And he may very well have, I mean, now experts look at what he did, the secrets that he did pass, because we know that Greenglass was involved as well, um, that they were, they had of minimal import. They were, they were kind of basic rudimentary drawings that wouldn't have led to much discovery or much, you know, that could have, could have um, accelerated the development of the bomb for the Soviet Union. But that doesn't mean he wasn't trying to. So we, you know, we, we grapple with this. We live with this, um, uh, which is a big change from, you know, when I was growing up and my father was younger, uh, also, which you see in the film, where we really believed that they were totally innocent because that's mm -hmm. what they said. And so I'm sorry, I don't think I answered your question fully in the beginning is that is how the how my understanding of our story and then the interest in Roy Cohn has changed over time and led me to make this current film had a lot to do with what I went through making my first film, Heir to an Execution, which, which really focuses on my grandparents and what happened to my father and my uncle as a result of, of their trial and execution. But I, I kind of, in that film... I focused on David Greenglass as as the worst person you could imagine, right? I'm like, he's my grandmother's brother, and he makes up this story, and then he and which causes her both of them to be convicted and be executed, but specifically her because she had there was no code name. We know that she was innocent. We know that even if she was a supportive wife, even if she was very smart, very political and supported what Julius was doing, there was absolutely no evidence that she was a spy or doing anything that would have, I mean, at all, you know, justified her being convicted and certainly not executed. So I fixated on that, but going for making air and execution, 
I kind of came out the other side and I started to understand that David Greenglass, he was used as well and he was terrified. And, you know, he was basically confronted with what Cone, Cone came to him and said, you, you know, if you don't cooperate with us, your wife is going to be arrested next. So if you understand, like he's been arrested and his wife, they have, she has a code name and she is part of this, this spy ring that they've, that, that, you know, the family has participated in and he has two young children at home as well. And Cohn is saying to him, you're going to go to the electric chair. Your wife's going to go to the electric chair unless you cooperate. So mm. he starts to be, I started to shift my, I started to think, well, who is the real villain here? It's much more than David Greenglass. It's Roy Cohn. So the belief is that the family was involved in a spy ring, mm -hmm. right? Your, your grandmother's brother and yeah. your, and your grandfather, your grandmother knew about it and was maybe a supportive wife to her spy husband, mm -hmm. but they were, but then the contention is that the, the spying was at really such a low level and the information flow at a not critical, uh, import right. that it didn't really deserve the death penalty. Absolutely. Just to be precise, we, they were convicted of conspiracy to commit espionage. There was never even a proof of, you know, treason, which is what, you know, that they, so they were executed in a, a very low bar of, you know, that they were, they were convicted of just conspiracy to commit espionage, but because of the frenzy of the time and the, the fear mongering and the anti-communist fervor that was growing and growing and just exploded exponentially once Cohn goes to DC and becomes McCarthy's right-hand man, that that all helped, you know, that, that all created an atmosphere where you could, you know, you executions were tolerable and actually demanded. It sounds to me like then Roy Cohn wasn't alone. There was obviously some sort of government mechanism behind him. Oh, absolutely. That may, yes. Right. That, that it seemed yeah. like they were asking or, or begging or maybe demanding bodies being drug in the streets, so to say. And maybe yeah. that's what, you know, and your, your grandparents, unfortunately, were caught in that political uh, power struggle. Absolutely. And, and I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, that they, they wouldn't budge. You know, they were, you know, there's a whole kind of, there was a whole uh, culture of naming names at the time, you know, right? You get arrested, you get accused of something, and they'd say, well, can you, can you tell us about some of your comrades? And, mm. and then that, then that they would lead to the next and the next and the next. And it kind of stopped with them. I mean, there's a, the, uh, Victor Novosky, who was the editor in chief of the nation, wrote a book years and years ago called Naming Names that explores this in depth, but they, you know, they were, they were stubborn and they were, you know, they said, no, we're not going to do it. And a lot of what, what I uncover in Airden Execution was that they were asked to, to give other names and they refused. Um, and, you know, even bringing in my grandmother and trying to arrest her was a way to try to break my grandfather and that it didn't work. And it mm -hmm. frustrated everyone involved. And you're absolutely right that Cone was just part of it. But Cone, you know, he, he would call the judge, Judge Kaufman, to discuss the sentencing and discuss the death penalty. 
and urged him to apply the death penalty to Ethel. That's that's all. That's not legal. You know, that's ex parte communication. You're not supposed to do that when you're on the prosecution team. You are only supposed to speak to the judge when the other when the defense attorneys are present. And he ignored that completely, which, as we know, <laughs> is no surprise. But I think if you ask why, you know, how my understanding of Cone and my interests and how it grew to the point where I wanted to make this film, to be honest, I didn't want to make a film about Cone because I didn't want to uh, revisit my family's story. I had done it. And, you know, I just, you know, I have a lot of stories I want to tell. I have a lot of things I want to do. And I, making Erdogan execution was a, was a grueling, you know, and cathartic experience. But I didn't want to, and I also didn't want it to be the grand hour of the Rosenbergs again in one of, in some, in my work. So I resisted it, even though Cohn was so fascinating to me. And I kept thinking, why doesn't somebody make a film about this guy? And no one had made a feature length documentary. Of course, as soon as I decided to, I learned that someone else was. I don't know if you've seen the other. I haven't. <laughs> there was another uh, feature documentary that came out a little bit before ours, but um, I just decided to keep my head down and say, "Think I have a, I have, I'm telling the story my way, and it'll be, a, it'll be its own film, and hopefully, there's room for two films about Roy Cohn." Turns out, I think there is. But I, well, I thought, I thought you were incredibly sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe empathetic is even a better word. Yeah. With Roy's life arc. Yeah. I thought you were very kind to him. You know, you yeah. you obviously include the portions where people call him the devil. Mm-hmm. But you also tell the stories that make him feel human when it could have been really easy to tell a story that made him look only like a sociopath. Yeah, yeah. What did you do... Was that a spiritual exercise? <laughs> I kind of actively pursued empathy. I have to say, like I, when I decided that I was going to make this film, I knew right away that I could not just, you know, just for basic storytelling purposes alone. Right. I mean, you don't, there's not, it's not interesting to have a, a, a character that's just one note. You know, there's only so many times you can hear people saying how evil someone is before you're like, Oh yeah. All right. I get it. And then you don't care, you don't, you're not engaged. And the same holds when you're the filmmaker. I had to be trying to find out more uh, about him and, and exploring the complexities of this person. Or how am I going to spend two years of my life, you know, researching and then shooting it and editing it and spending all the time that we do? I, I wanted to know more, but I think what I think this the the moment that that started to happen for me was way back when i first saw the aids quilt panel and i explore that i talk about this in the film i was a college student and i'd, I'd traveled to washington dc with my father and uh, for those who don't know the names project was the official name of it and it was this massive display that rolled out on the mall at the smithsonian the smithsonian mall um in washington dc thousands and thousands of these little, of panels that people lovingly made for friends and family who'd died from AIDS, HIV and AIDS. And my father and I walk in, we could have come in at any part of the, the mall. And the, but the very first panel we walk up to says, bully coward victim, Roy Cohn. Somebody had made sure that he was included there, even though he had denied he was gay his whole life. 
And up until he's dying of AIDS, he he denies he has AIDS. He says he has liver cancer till the very end. And I didn't know that he had been, that he was gay. Didn't know he died of AIDS. I was a college student. I hadn't thought about Roy Cohn really at all. I, except for the, what I knew his relationship to my grandparents trial. And so I was shocked. And I just had that moment where I thought this, this, good. The guy deserves it. And then I felt horrible for feeling that way. And I thought, well, the poor guy, <laughs> you know, so I, I started to understand that you can hold both of those feelings at once. You don't have to only despise this person. You can also try to understand like how they became monstrous or, you know, I mean, that they, you know, to humanize him is to also, uh, take away some of his power, I think. Let me play documentarian critic for a second <laughs> and share and share with you what I was observing and what I thought I was observing, the spiritual exercise that I thought I was observing while I watched this documentary, which which may have been unintended, but you tell me. I'm gonna I'm gonna lay this out. You tell me if it was intended or unintended, which is as I watched this documentary. I felt like, one, let's imagine your grandfather, and we can tell that he is a man of principles. He's a man who has his own ethic, right? He's not going to turn people in. Mm-hmm. He is willing to fight for things he believes in to the, to the level that he's willing to fight a fight against a country that he lives in, yeah. you know, on, on whatever low level. But yet this man who does some things that people would call evil was a man who actually had his own set of ethics that he was willing to die for. Yeah, yeah. Right? So interestingly, as you then explore Roy Cohn in this very empathetic way, I felt like in many ways it was this exploration of a man who many people called the devil, who many people believed did lots of evil things, and yet you were telling the story about how even this man had a code of ethics yeah, and had principles and had discipline and had a, a, a certain like ethic of ruthlessness mm-hmm. and winning that was important to him. Yeah. Right. That he was willing to sacrifice basically everything for. Right. And so I didn't know, was that on purpose to Cause I felt like emotionally you were comparing Roy Cohn and the difficulty of finding empathy for him, but you did it. And you and you allowed me to do it watching the documentary to the same difficulty that someone might have having empathy for your grandfather as a convicted spy. I you know, I think you're I think you're right in the sense that it's not it wasn't like a conscious thing necessarily, although I did start to see as we were structuring because it was very challenging structuring this film, the edit um, that. It was more that it was almost like my father versus Cone. But I think I think what you're getting at is even deeper in that for for me, I think part of why I look to humanize, and I do this with all my work. I mean, that's like I mean I'm not, you know, even I made a film about the Indian Point nuclear power plant north of New York City, which is such a touchstone, right? And people have been trying to shut that plant down and you know, I wanted to humanize the guys who work at the plant. You know, I'm always, I'm always trying to, even though I'm 
much more on the side of the activists trying to shut it down. My focus was to try to humanize that. I think what you're getting at is that because I grew up with so many people thinking my grandparents were evil and struggling with that um, kind of simplistic and, and um, you know, devastating label, which is dehumanizing, I think that it's made me someone who, no matter what the subject is, I'm going to fight against that. Well, that came through, I thought, in- incredibly clearly uh, in your approach to Roy, because you, of all people, would have a, a, a psychological excuse mm-hmm. to not treat him with that much uh, empathy. Right. And you did. And so then, on the and conversely, you have the perfect position to treat him with empathy in a way that would encourage other people to do that because he committed atrocities against your grandparents. Yeah, it's almost like by having me be the one to do it, it gives other people permission to to be, you know, to kind of open up and be okay with with understanding him a little bit more. It doesn't mean that we forgive him. It doesn't mean we don't think that he behaved horribly and was, you know, cruel and um and I think history is, you know, judges him that way but i just think it doesn't really you know further our understanding or conversation about you know how we how we allowed him to operate the way he did and and enabled him and how so many how so many people liberals and democrats and all sorts of supposedly you know people who would be just you know uh, reject him, you know, actually embraced him. I think, you know, for me, it was very poignant that he had, he lived so much of his life in hiding and lying and what that does to a person. Um, and I think that, that if there, if there's anything we can learn from, from Cone's story too, it's that, you know, any a kind of great societal bigotry that forces people to, live a lie um now of course he he chose that as well but you have to put him in the context of the times i mean he was it was terrifying to be be a gay man and especially when he was in washington dc in the in the 50s with uh you know um, during the mccarthy era you know i actively tried to imagine what it would be have been like for him to go to washington where more gay people were being run out of the government than than uh, suspected communists at the time, you know he was. It was not, you know, he had to really, uh, you know, um, be extremely careful. And what does that do to a person? I mean, he's a young he's a young guy, and then I I just I I look at him. I I I looked at the photos of him and the footage, and I tried to understand. You could see that he's happier in different places. You see, he looks happier in Provincetown. Um, when he's, you know, all those photos that we ended up getting the beautiful boat photos, the Polaroids where you really see him relaxed, Mm. right? He doesn't, he looks so, he just looks, um, like a different person. And what did you learn? What did you learn in your research about him, about his youth? Did you uncover any things that might tell us about traumas that would have affected him in such a way that, 
you know, kind of followed him throughout his life? Not, I mean, he was, it was very hard to find out a lot about his, his childhood. Um, I think, you know, I, I don't, I didn't uncover any real traumas, but what I, what I, what I discovered was that he, he was almost like a grown up by the time he was five years old. You know, he was someone who, you know, was sitting at the table with his father and his father was a judge, um, and a big, um, part of the New York democratic, um, party and knew all the party bosses and they, you know, so he would sit at the table at the dinner table and be part of these very heady, um, adult conversations and they would engage him. And he learned early on about, you know, the, what it was, he called the favor bank, you know, you do something for me, I do something for you. And that was a lifelong, I mean, that was part of how he operated, of course. Um, but I think, you know, he, interestingly, he had two, his mother and his aunt Libby were two figures um, in his life, probably the most important people who shaped him. And they were both, they were very different. His mother doted on him, but was, I think, kind of cold and withholding and, um difficult and also extremely ambitious and wanted him to be, you know, a huge, huge success. And there was a lot of pressure on him. And meanwhile, his aunt Libby was more warm and fun loving. And I think he could be more open with her. From what I understand, he was able to be, um, that she, she knew he was gay and was, and, you know, in later years, he would bring her to parties and be very open about who he was with. And, um, uh, you see her at some of those parties. Meanwhile, with his mother, he never came out to his mother. Um, maybe she suspected, we don't know, but, but it was a very different kind of relationship. So it's almost like those two women represent these two sides of Roy. But I think he also, you know, being gay, he was so ambitious. So he's gay and he's also Jewish, which is also not easy. Um, and so you know, some people call him a self-hating Jew. I think I'm not quite sure I would call him a self-hating Jew. He's, he was careful to make sure that he was aligned with the so-called good Jews versus the bad Jews who are people like my grandparents, you know, lefties, commies, or, you know, or potentially spies. And they are, they are, they're lumped together that way. And so for him to make, to distinguish himself uh, between distinguish himself from the the bad Jews was really, really important. I think it drove a lot of his anti-communist um, activity and positions. Um, and same with him, you know, his, his homophobia. I mean, we have him in the film, you know, publicly decrying and, and uh, condemning the gay rights, gay civil rights bill that was working its way through New York City's council. So he would do the same thing you know, with, with, um, being Jewish, just to, I think the anti-communist stance was his way of just saying, you know, I'm a good Jew. These are the bad Jews. I thought in the, the film, the relationship with Donald Trump was fascinating as well. Oh yeah. Did you learn a lot about that? Well, I mean, did you know about that before? No. What finally got me to, after thinking what a great subject Roy Cohn is, and I've, you know, and wondering why doesn't somebody else do this film? 
um, what ha what really got me to finally decide to do it myself was the election of Trump. And it was because I really, I, I knew that they were, I knew that he had been his mentor. I didn't know how, I didn't know to what extent. I also knew that he'd been the Trump family lawyer for years and they, you know, would be seen at parties together, but that was about it. Um, I had no, we, I had no idea just how crucial Cone was to the Donald to the creation of the Donald Trump we know today now as president. I mean, he he was instrumental in in putting Trump together with the very people who got him elected: Roger Stone, Paul Manafort. Um, they were Cone allies. They were Cone people, and Cone introduced Trump to everybody. I mean. You know, he brought him into Manhattan from Queens in a way that, you know, he had not had access before. He connected him with the mob. He connected him with all these political figures and very directly connected him with the Reagan White House because Cohn had been essential to um, the Republican Party work in New York um, and supporting Reagan. And he had a very good relationship with everybody at the Reagan White House. And that's how Trump started to imagine himself on the national stage and in politics. And we actually pinpoint in the film, I think, the, the, the actual moment that that started to happen. And it was Cohn using his contacts in media with a, a Washington Post reporter, Lois Romano, who's one of our wonderful subjects. And she, she Cohn asked her to do a major interview with a young Donald Trump where Cohn basically um, set up this story and, and had Trump saying, hey, Roy thinks I should do this. I could be the nuclear arms negotiator for the United States with the Soviet Union. <laughs> I mean, this is this, you know, dopey real estate, you know, um, millionaire at the time in, in New York City who wasn't taken very seriously because he was it was his father's business. And there he is all of a sudden because Cone, Roy Cohn is so powerful and so connected. There he is thinking he could serve in that role. And I, I mean, and that's, you know, for, uh, for the work that we were doing on this film, that felt like a very, um, really important thing to uncover. And I, I just, you know, it's just amazing. You know, so many people have no idea who Roy Cohn is, never mind how much he influenced our current president or the situation we're in now when roger stone appeared in the film i <laughs> you know i almost fell over i went oh my gosh look at the way these things just all come back around exactly i think people felt like mccarthyism and and the world of roy Cohn and um it it's, was so far away right but now we see that it what it's not i mean all and, and we took great pains to not you know not focus so much on trump but this, all the stories and things we were discovering and showing about how how Cohen operated are just so reminiscent. So what you have is, you know, scenes where this journalist, Peter Manson, is going through all these unpaid bills of Roy's. And you don't we don't need to say it, but every you know, you you basically you get it. This is this is Trump. Right. The, the, the cone who is so proud of not paying his taxes and who's openly flouting the the IRS 
that's that's all that's Trump. So I think we're, uh, you know, history's repeating itself in a in a very in a in a in a more subtle way. But it's but it, when once you really look at it, it's not so subtle. Once you really bring it out. So there's a, a, quite a few listeners to this uh, podcast who are movie makers. Tell us a little bit about the actual deal making of this documentary. How did you put the money together? What kind of a budget did you have? Was HBO sure. was HBO involved at the beginning, or did they just buy the film once it was completed? Well, um, I was very, very fortunate with this with this project. Uh, I mean, my relationship with HBO goes back to Aired on Execution, which they um, I had never made a film before. And Sheila Evans, who was then the head of HBO Documentaries, a well-known, um, amazing executive producer there, she had a lot of faith in me and allowed me, gave me small amounts of money and allowed me to figure out how to make Aired and Execution, even though I'd never directed anything before. I had worked as a, I worked in politics for years. I worked as a journalist. I had written some screenplays, but. Um, that story really um, led me to make the make a documentary. The, my family story I knew had to be a documentary, so it was kind of like the story dictated the medium. So that's way back. That came out in two thousand four, but it was a big success for them. We premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. It was quite a heady experience for me, never having done this before. And we were shortlisted for Academy Award, and it did very well for HBO. So all these years later, I I went back to them, and now Sheila's not there anymore, but. Nancy Abraham and Lisa Heller are uh, both at the helm of the documentary side of HBO. And I'm very close with both of them. And what happened was I did not feel strongly enough that I had, that I had the store, that I had a film just based on my own personal connection. Right. So I set out, I gave myself the task of get, getting a hold of some rare materials that would make that would make me feel like I had a had a film or I had the foundation of a film. And what I mean by rare materials were like audio or video or uh, you know film, video, whatever that no one had ever heard before, and that would allow Cohn to almost narrate his story. I knew there had to be audio out there, so I started. But I started digging around. I started digging around in Provincetown, and which led me to Peter Manso. I won't get into all the details, but I I secured. I, I made a deal with Peter Manso that I would get the access to these audio tapes from his a big interview he did with Cohn for Playboy magazine in 1981. And these are incredible. You know, you get so excited when you're a documentary filmmaker mm -hmm. to find something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And that I took that to Nancy with my, my producing partners on this are a company called motto pictures, Julie Goldman, um, who I made Indian point with and I love them. And we, we just, we have a great relationship. They've done, they're very close with HBO as well. So Julie and I went to see Nancy and I said, look, I have these tapes. I have this, I have that. This is why this story is so important. We need to go quickly on this. Now, you know, <laughs> everyone out there who knows this business knows nothing moves that quickly. But so while HBO was trying to figure out what they wanted to do, or if they wanted to give us development money. And I really felt like we had to move fast with this. It's really timely. And, and I know how long it takes to really uncover 
um, new material and great subjects to interview and everything. So I, so I was feeling very anxious about like how quickly we could move. In the meantime, I'm, I, uh, I at a party and I'm talking to people from Magnolia Pictures. I'm talking in the meantime with CNN Films, with Courtney Sexton, because she is someone I worked with. On a, on a film about the last days of the Obama administration. I worked on a film for CNN Films about that. And so I had a good relationship with her. So there was a moment where it was like, oh, maybe Magnolia and CNN are gonna come together and give us enough of budget combined. We were looking for, you know, over a million for this easily. And it ended up being, I think like, 1.3, maybe even a little more because of archival being so expensive. Um, and I know in some, some worlds that's not very much money, but in documentary, that's a, that's a little bit on the high end. Um, so what happened was as we were doing that, we circled back to HBO and we said, uh, Hey, we are talking to other people, but what do you, how are you guys feeling? And within like a week, they had said, that's it. We're in, we're good. We want to, we want to finance the whole thing. That's fantastic. And I, it's thrilling yeah. for me because I'm so used to cobbling together budgets for, you know, where, where in the end, I don't even have enough, you know, even after everything is said and done. And, um, this was, this was great because I was, we were able to go straight into production and we started editing or, you know, almost simultaneously, so we could move quick, more quickly. And you can't do that unless you get the full budget right, right away. Well, I thought you just absolutely killed it on this documentary. It's fantastic. What's next for you? And what are you working on? Uh, thank you. Um, well, I, you know, one thing I really want to do is a scripted version of Cohn's life. I uncovered so many great stories and so many details and so just so much material that I want uh, that, that I think, you know, like a limited series, you know, along the vein, you know, um, did you see the, the Roger Ailed loudest voice in the room? Mm-hmm. Yes. Excellent. So, um, I am working, I'm actually writing the pilot myself and a kind of an outline of what, where I see it could be like eight hours possibly of a limited series based on, based on the doc. So that's one thing. <laughs> the the pieces you put in about the play, right? The, mm. the scenes from the play that are, that are basically based on Roy Cohn's life, yes. I thought were incredibly indicative of the of a show yes. that would be not totally um, different than maybe uh, Succession, right? Yes, right. That has that kind of same feel, that gritty, um, wealthy power mm-hmm. struggle. Uh, Illuminati-esque kind of feel. Absolutely. And, and of course, HBO would be my first choice to partner with on, on that. I'm definitely going to be talking to them, but I, um, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to, I have enough written and I'm supposed to start having conversations. In fact, I was actually in Los Angeles just before the pandemic, um, you know, meeting with people about this idea and, I was hoping to kind of time it to the release of the documentary to get something going. Um, and, you know, I've never, I've never done anything like that before myself. So, but I, but I feel like I could be, you know, a writer and, 
you know, even direct some of it or I don't know. I'd, I'd love to have that experience um, to do that. And I, I had just have so much, uh, so much good material. It's, and it's, I mean, if you can just imagine, you know, how he intersected with so many parts of American history. Right. And then, and had an effect on, on them that I think it would be great. So I, I'm working on that. I've got a couple, I've got some other, um, documentaries, you know, of course we're all kind of waiting to see what's going to happen, but I am, I'm exploring a documentary project right now that, um, would take place that takes place on Cape Cod where there's a great white shark problem. I don't know if you heard about this. Um, we, the, the outer Cape is now home in the ocean and Bayside. There are just more and more great white sharks coming here. And I was, I've been exploring the idea of doing this kind of behind the scenes, uh, more of a verite doc where you're um, getting to know all these different players who, you know, were the scientists, environmentalists, um, but also the um, town board, um, tourism interests, you know, all the clashing interests, like what the hell are we going to do about this? Because it's affecting, you know, someone was killed in 2018. Someone almost died the sharks are becoming more of a problem. Um, and it's the story of Jaws, of course. So we want to shoot it as an homage to Jaws. Hmm. And because all the settings look the same, a lot of the characters are very, you know, similar. But what's interesting as I'm exploring this is like, it's actually um, the virus, you know, I had put this on hold. I was going to shoot this this summer, but then when everything fell apart in the spring, I couldn't get the financing and there were people to commit to it who had been very interested, but, you know, all hell broke loose. We didn't know what to do. But now um, I'm realizing that the that COVID, actually, the virus has a lot. It's so relevant. You know, how, you know, in Jaws, how, you know, recklessly this danger was dealt with. And, you know, famously, the mayor, you know, decides to, to lie to keep businesses going, right? And, and rushes to, you know, the idea that we're rushing to reopen the economy at the expense of people's lives. There's just a lot of, um, a lot of overlap here and a lot of, uh, it's, it's, it made me feel like this is actually a story that refers to the virus without talking about it directly, if that makes any sense. Mm, absolutely. I get it. Um, so I'm, you know, I, I've got a lot that I want to do. Well, you're just at the very beginning of your career. It looks like we're right at the, what in uh, venture capital we call the bottom of the hockey stick, right? So your, <laughs> your career's about to explode upward. If people want to follow you, do you have social media? Where can they find you? How do they keep tabs on what you're doing and, and be ready for your next movie or television show? Oh, sure. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not all that active on social media, but I am on Instagram. You can find me IV Marip at IV Maripol, but it's just IV, no Y. Um, and on, I'm on Facebook. Um, you also, I, we have the um, bully coward victim, Roy Cohn Facebook page. Um, that's probably the, although I guess you can't learn about new material there, but I would say I will try to do a better job about posting about things that I'm going to be working on. But I, I, I mean, I do, as soon as something is happening, I usually 
I, I'm usually putting it out there. Ivy, your future's bright. Thank you for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for talking to me, Ryan. I really enjoyed the conversation. I did, I did too. That was fantastic. I, I love what you're doing. I mean, you're, you're telling you. really good stories, and I can't wait to see what's next. Thanks for your time. This is Ryan Millsap, and this is the Black Hall Studios Podcast. I'll leave you guys with thoughts that I write on Instagram. No one ever said, reflecting on the whole of someone's life, man, that monstrous ego sure was worth it. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap.